Okay, so we are uh, doing the last week of this first session of the writings. Uh, so I'd encourage you to sign up for session two if you'd like to keep going through uh, the storyline. Uh, today we're going to wrap up with uh, where this is headed, where it has come, where it has gone uh, as far as the overall story of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but uh, I'd encourage you to come back and keep going as we finish up the Hebrew Bible uh, in the next session. You can sign up on the app. Of course, if you do that, then you can get the, um, the resources, uh, the additional resources and the main resources like these handouts uh, online. You can also sign up for snacks, so I uh, definitely encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, and of course, there's other classes as well that I uh, encourage you to check out. I don't have those in front of me right now, but I encourage you to check those out as well um, and sign up uh, for the next six-week uh, class. So. Uh, okay, let's see here. Where are we? We are uh, doing Ruth, <coughs> Ruth, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. So we're going to knock out three books today. Um, again, very ambitious as we have been this whole time. Um, so uh, we're going to start with Ruth here. Um, and if you remember, uh, I've told you that there's a couple different orders in the, um, the Hebrew Bible, we don't exactly know which one is the right one. There's a more common order um, that is used uh, nowadays where um, after Psalms comes Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Uh, here, that's the order of this wisdom books here. We're studying this, it's a little bit older order that goes along with the original Masoretic text uh, based on the Leningrad Codex of 1000, uh, around AD 1000. And that's the order we're studying uh, here, which is Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, uh, or Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. Uh, then again, heading back. So there's just a difference within these wisdom books. All of the orders end with Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Um, so they all. Uh, all of them have this kind of poetic interlude, right, where we've, we've stopped the story at the end of Kings, the narrative story, and we've got just a lot of poetry, um, a lot of prophetic books and a lot of these wisdom books. And then we're going to come pick back up the narrative story with Daniel, uh, and we'll do that in a couple weeks, okay? So we are going to jump into Ruth here. Uh, authorship of Ruth is unknown. We have no idea who wrote it. Um, guess different speculation someone around the time of the judges but um, or, or sometime after that maybe but um, we don't really know so the events of Ruth take place uh, during the time of the judges uh, the book was most likely composed sometime after 1000 BC which would be a little bit after the judges um, and uh, um, the reason I would say it's a little bit after is the literary style is a little more like uh, the time of the monarchy and less like the time of the judges, um, a little bit more sophisticated. So probably uh, came a little bit later, but the story certainly takes place, uh, the events certainly take place during the time of the judges. So uh, let's jump in here, Ruth 1 and 2, or I'm sorry, Ruth 1 through 4. Uh, so during the time of the judges, it actually notes this, um, it's, this sets the scene, right? This is... Um, uh, it's not a time when Israel was obeying, okay? So it sets the time as during the time of the judges, a man named uh, Elimelech, E-L-I-M-E-L-E-C-H, Elimelech. Uh, this is, uh, he's a, implied to be a man from the tribe of Judah, okay? So that's important, remember that. Um, so a man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, along with their two sons, migrate from Bethlehem. Of course, that's the city of David. So this is the territory of uh, Judah. Uh, they migrate from Bethlehem to the land of Moab in order to avoid a great famine. Now, very interesting that it's Moab. Moab is presented in scripture, uh, especially in Numbers, as um, evil, basically. I mean, Moab is the the evil representative that the uh, Messiah will one day crush. So that's the evil of man is symbolized in Moab. So 
very interesting that they go to Moab. Um, while there, Elimelech dies. And after the two sons marry Moabite women, they die as well, the sons do. So Naomi is left with only Orpah and Ruth. Not Oprah, Orpah <laughs> and Ruth, her uh, Moabite daughter-in-law. Uh, that's the blank there, Moabite daughter-in-law. Uh, so when she decides to return to Israel, she tells her daughters to return to their mother's homes. <coughs> Orpah does, but Ruth insists on accompanying Naomi back to Israel. She commits to Naomi and to God and other non-Israelites, as not other non-Israelites have done. So I've got a couple references there, like Joshua 2, uh, which you, uh, if you remember Rahab and the spies, and then um, I got Jonah there, of course, the Ninevites repent. Um, but again, she's a Moabite. Um, so uh, if, any, if, if anyone ever tells you that the Hebrew Bible is not ironic in its storytelling, uh, just bring them to this moment, right? She's a Moabite, so this is very interesting that she's committing to God here. Uh, they reach Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. So they left for the famine. Uh, Naomi and Ruth only are returning at the beginning of the harvest. So one day Ruth gleaned, or this is basically gathering leftovers from the field. Uh, so one day Ruth gleaned in a field belonging to Boaz, a kinsman of Elimelech. Uh, we can see this in, uh, this is chapter 2, verse 3, it says she happened. So, um, you know, this is kind of, again, the humorous rhetoric here, the literature, it's she happened to be, well, it's really God's sovereign ways that means she she's happens to be in this field, right? When Boaz finds out who she is, he tells her that she may continue and may drink from his water whenever she's thirsty. Um, let's read a few verses here. Can I get a volunteer to read 11 through 13 of chapter 2? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your, of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and uh, the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know may the lord reward your work your work and your wages be full from the lord the god of israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge then she said i have found favor in your sight my lord for you have com comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant though i am not like one of your maidservants Awesome, thank you. So her faithfulness uh, to God is well known. That's the point here. Um, by this, you know, this speech, uh, we can see that. So he feeds her and instructs his servants to allow her to glean. His willingness to serve the poor shows that he keeps the law. Uh, that night, she takes what she has gleaned, had what she had gleaned, back to the city, and gives it to Naomi. Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is a relative and close friend. She's excited about the possibility of Boaz becoming a kinsman redeemer. I've got the uh, Deuteronomy 25 passage there. That's uh, from the law, from the Mosaic Covenant. It establishes the importance of a brother remarrying the widow of the deceased so that the line of that brother can continue, right? Um, line of that family can continue so um, so that's that's the idea that that Naomi is uh, kind of launching off here she's excited about that possibility uh, Ruth continues to glean in the field of Boaz until the end of the harvest so starting in chapter 3 Ruth and Naomi work out a plan to let Boaz know that Ruth will marry him uh, Boaz seems pleased with the idea when he wakes up to find Ruth lying at his feet. His interest is found in his belief that she is a woman of excellence. 
his desire is to marry someone like the woman presented in Proverbs 31. Um, in fact, uh, 3.11 there is, I mean, the, the phrasing, the language is very similar to Proverbs 31, especially verse 10 and verse 31 of Proverbs 31. She is the Proverbs 31 woman. Again, I would say if, if we're assuming that the older order is actually God's intended order, then I would say there's some um, what I would call meant contextuality here that Ruth is placed right after Proverbs, so you read that in a certain way. Regardless, there's some what I would call mere contextuality. They're placed somewhat close together. They're both wisdom literature. You should think of the similarities here when you're reading these two different accounts, right? Proverbs 31, uh, Ruth 3, describing Ruth. This is an example of the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, Boaz reveals that there is a closer relative than him. When he meets with his relative, the man does not wish to redeem Ruth by marrying her and buying Naomi's land. He tells Boaz that he may buy it for yourself. In front of the elders of the city, Boaz declares the redemption of Ruth. That's the blank there, the redemption of Ruth. Uh, he marries her and God enabled her to conceive. She gives birth to a son named Obed, who later becomes the grandfather of David. There you go. Yeah. Two things. Um, that was really great on Naomi's part to not be jealous mm. and want to I think we can take from the story that it was um, it, it, he knew exactly what it meant right so um, uh, probably not um, usual I think we can also tell from the story and but um, uh, there's so little that we actually know about the ancient Near East and stuff regarding stuff like this that it's kind of hard to tell um, how unusual this would have been or not but I don't think he would have called her a woman of excellence right yeah. after she did it if it was something that was associated with like floozies. yeah I, I yeah I definitely don't think we should get from the story that she was like undressed or you know there was some kind of I didn't yeah. yeah 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 no no I know I'm just I'm going the full swinging the pendulum all the way there um, but yeah it's it's an interesting interesting little um, it's, it's an ironic story, it's an interesting story, and again, we get to the point of it here as far as big picture point with the fact that Obed is the grandfather of David. That's, that's a really interesting thing. So, um, and of course, in the storyline, we already know who David is. David's already been given the prophecy that the Messiah will come from his line. Now we have this story that connects a Moabite with... Um, the line of David. So that's very, very interesting. Second uh, Samuel 7 shows that an eternal kingdom will come through his line of descendants. Isaiah 9 through 11 and Zechariah 9 through 14 show that this kingdom will be universal. Universal. Um, let's turn to 4. Chapter 4. Uh, yeah, let's go and read this. Can I have a brave volunteer read uh, 12 through 22, 11 verses? Anybody want to read this? Ruth 4. 4, 12 through 22. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. Ruth 4, 12. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young man, May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and he, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman, Redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, 
the father of David. Then this is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Minadab. Minadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. <coughs> Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Awesome. Thank you. So um, this is really the point. Uh, Ruth has continued the Messianic line, and it actually mentions Tamar, right? Tamar did the same thing in the Pentateuch. Moses actually showed it as a positive that she had done that to continue the line of Judah, um, and that was fulfilling the prophecy um, that, that Moses uh, presented there in Genesis 49. So... Um, we have a similar type of event here, at least according to the, uh, the author of Ruth. So uh, just as mercy has been offered to a non-Israelite like Ruth, it will be offered to all nations through one of her descendants. Uh, and this is the real point. The last few verses really highlight this. Ruth also affirms that Proverbs and Job have, uh, what Proverbs and Job have done with caution. The, books, the book shows that God vindicates the faithful in the long run. So God deserves the worship of all humanity, even a Moabite. We see that in this in this story. Um, not just Israel, but even a Moabite, the worship of all humanity. Uh, the Davidic coming kingdom is coming because of God's redemption of a Moabite. So redemption is offered. You all. That's that's really the point of this story. So um, significance. Uh, Ruth shows that God's mercy will be offered to the faithful, regardless of their background, race, or circumstances. Mercy is offered to Ruth, and through her descendant, mercy is offered to all nations. It really, I mean, it's a really small story, but really, really powerful story for sure. So to open it up, um, how have you seen God's mercy lived out in your life? Uh, how? Have you seen him work in your circumstances? What does God's offer of mercy through the Davidic line say about him and his purposes? Any thoughts here? Yeah. Can I just ask a question before you go to those? Is, was it, in your studies, is there any thought that um, Elimelech made a poor choice in going to Moab? Um, it was obviously under God's sovereignty, but yeah. any thought on that? Um. Well, I think we'd have to go outside the text um, to show it. Um, I, I would chalk it up to irony uh, more than anything. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like the same question of um, should they, you know, should uh, Jacob and the sons have ever left because of famine before, mm -hmm. right? I mean, does it, um, these are kind of the questions that have to do with kind of God's <coughs> sovereign will versus his revealed will and yeah, maybe. Maybe they shouldn't have left. Maybe they should have more faith. Uh, maybe in this instance, you know, Elimelech should have never left. Who knows? I mean, that's kind of yeah. a... They're, they're, I think that the, the intention of the story at least makes you ask those questions because they went to Moab. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. A very recent story about God's mercy in my life is um, sitting on a plane on the wing of my dad and begging God to have mercy on him. And knowing that, you know, scripture says that God's patience is intended to lead us to repentance. And I very much see this time, these next three months, as an opportunity for my dad to repent. And that God has drawn the aquifer and sent the water and I get to go draw it and take it to my dad. So, very thankful for that opportunity. Thank you for sharing that. Anybody else here? As far as the Davidic line, you know, there, you can look at a lot of the iconic names in the Bible, and they were all flawed human beings, and we fit right in. Yeah. And so, you know, the fact that God's mercy comes through the Davidic line, and he was flawed, but he's also known as a man after God's own heart. Mm -hmm. So how that applies to us and being flawed just like every other human. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? 
fact that God just keeps pulling people into his family, mm. I mean, just kind of, that's just his mercy on people. I mean, you look, I've always found it interesting that Moab, they're like the, that's from the incestuous lot line. Yeah, and right. just go, he just keeps pulling them back in yeah. to his people. And, uh, yeah, definitely shows like the you character. can always pull somebody in. Yeah, you right. just go. Those people are just total <clears throat> lunatics or whatever they're yep. doing down there, but he just keeps, picks them out. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a challenge for me to not just write people off yes. here in our culture and our, our, our games, for sure. Yep, yep. I, I think just uh, probably a common bond between all of us. Uh, I lived so much of my life in darkness, uh, not seeking to glorify God at all, and yet he's, he justified me and, and saved me. Yeah. And, and similarly, uh, I've lived essentially my whole life in the United States, which what a, what a great life yeah. it's been for the most part, even though uh, the nation doesn't seem to be going in a good direction now. <coughs> and and I, I can't blame God for that. Uh, it's certainly deserved, mm -hmm. and uh, but but nonetheless, uh, uh, a blessed life. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Mark, I see in circumstance in my life with my daughter, and some of you know that circumstance, in that I see God working because He has allowed my daughter and me to continue a relationship. Even though she doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, mm -hmm. I think it's His mercy yeah. that has allowed her to have that relationship with me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think we also see how God allows, if we belong to Him, how He allows, allows our poor choices to be turned into good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, I. I my experience with mercy is that it, it comes to us unexpectedly, you know, out of the blue. Um, uh, something that I, you know, I'm going on with my life, my own sinful life, and he decides to interject himself into that history. And um, that's what makes me marvel. Even at the beginning of this thing, it's always it's interesting that Orpa, she also really, you know, you go, what was Naomi? She must have been something that they really, really liked her. But in the end, one held on and one didn't. Right. You know, right. And you just kind of go, you know, in two generations, the Lord's telling David, the grandson, to wipe them out. Yeah. You know, completely get rid of them. Yeah. And that's just doesn't last forever, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's keep going here. Uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, Song of Solomon was most likely written by Solomon. Uh, it was written sometime before 930 BC, so this would have been during his lifetime. Um, uh, let's see, yeah, Solomon's referred to as the author seven times in the book, so um, he, he most likely wrote all of it, if not... Uh, almost all of it, so uh, this has been uh, from him during his lifetime, uh, and uh, we, I believe, we'll talk about this in a second, I believe we take this as um, his own experience uh, with his wife. So, uh, Proverbs, I'm sorry, Song of Solomon, uh, where we, one, yeah, and I actually just have the whole thing here in one section, uh, so there's eight chapters, so we'll just do this in one section here. Um, so, Song of Solomon, in Proverbs, the love of one's spouse and the avoiding of adultery are encouraged. Ruth is presented as an example of this in action. Song of Solomon, then, is the intimate descriptions of the relationship of a man and a woman in proper marriage. 
book starts with their confessions of love and passion for each other, their praise and affection for one another increase their confidence in their relationship. Verbal sharing of affection is shown to be wise by Solomon. They are excited about reuniting when apart and about spending time together. Uh, they seek after one another. Their pre-marriage devotion is similar to that of Boaz's in Ruth, but much more avert. What does that mean? Overt. Avert. Uh, what do I mean by that? Overt? Mm -hmm. or probably. Uh, a much younger and more slender man wrote this. <laughs> it was me. It was just a long time ago. Um, <coughs> what do I mean by that? I think I mean overt. Um, let's see. Their pre-marriage devotion is similar to that, but much more. I mean, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, overt would be turning away. So this is probably an autocorrect here. So overt, yeah. Overt, yeah. Overt. Thank you. Their pre-marriage devotion is similar to that of Boaz's in Ruth, but much more overt. Uh, the example shown here is the way to avoid the adulterer. Avoid the adulterer. Is the blank there that Proverbs warns against? There's some passages there from Proverbs. Um, some different ways that this this little book has been viewed in history. Um, there are many for a long time that believed that this was an allegory describing uh, God and Israel, the re relationship between God and Israel. Um, in church history, there's been those that have thought this was an allegory about Christ and the church uh, or about um, the Messiah and the concept of wisdom. This is like a, a Messiah and wisdom allegory. Um, anyway, I, I don't, I reject all of those. <laughs> I think this is um, actually an example of God's uh, love and devotion in marriage. I think that's that's actually what this is. So, um, and I think um, uh, it, I think my view has become more popular now, uh, especially with um, uh, who's the guy Tommy Tommy Nelson? Is that his name? Uh, there's anyway the famous uh, pastor who did a bunch of uh, he wrote a bunch about Song of Solomon. He does a a marriage conference uh, through the Song of Solomon. Um, and so the, uh, my view has become much more popular. I would say 50 years ago, it was still uh, very, very common for people to believe that this was simply an allegory uh, expre uh, expressing the relationship between God and Israel. So um, again, one of the reasons I believe uh, that it is truly um, speaking about godly love and devotion in marriage is that um, it just that that's what fits with the rest of this wisdom material right um, it fits with what we've seen in proverbs it fits with Ruth it, it fits with the idea that um, living in exile or living in a time where you're waiting for the Messiah to come which is the time we're in now you need wisdom in everyday life and this, this is an example of that, love and devotion and marriage, and how you should think of these things. So, uh, Okay, so let's keep going here. On his wedding day, Solomon travels in illustrious fashion. He expresses his love for his bride and describes her beauty in intimate detail. Uh, his public profession seals his commitment to her. The marriage commitment presented here is that is that of the one presented in Genesis 2, where Eve is considered the most suitable partner for Adam. Uh, jumping into chapter 5 here, the text moves on to dealing with separation in marriage. Not legal separate, but just being apart. Uh, they long to be together, and her devotion to him grows as he is away. When back together, the husband affirms his delight in her as well. 
He praises her beauty, saying, quote, my perfect one is unique. She is your mother's only daughter. And quote, he is consumed with her and no one else. As a result, she is glad to abide in him and satisfy his desires. Love and passion are as important after marriage as they are before it. All of this increases their level of commitment to each other. Their marital commitments are permanent, as love is to be a, quote, seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Uh, we see that there in uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 5 and 6. Five and six. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, learning, leaning on her beloved under the apple tree? I awakened you, then your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor, set me, set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. For your love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire and the very flame of the Lord. So we see this, this imagery is actually very similar to Proverbs, Proverbs 7. Um, I think there's some links here that uh, can, where we can see the desire for wife and wisdom uh, in that. Um, anyway, I, I don't think that means this is an allegory. Uh, I think that we can see a connection and see a spiritual connection here without making this an allegory. I think this is truly um, Solomon talking about love and devotion to his wife here. How do you reconcile that? I mean, yeah. Solomon, he had so many wives. How, like, this yeah. seems like a very ironic thing Was that last him, week right? we, we, oh, sorry. we even asked that? Okay. Yeah, know, I wasn't here. Yeah, so it, um, it is difficult. I mean, I think the, um, I think Steve had mentioned that um, the, the thought here is that this is describing his first wife. Mm. But um, I think that part of this comes back to what do we think of when we think of meaning and where that comes from. And um, I think the best way to think of it is when we think about authorial intent is we're thinking about the textual intention of the author. So understanding the background of the author and who he is even his psyche is not as important as understanding what is communicated in the text. So, um, that's just yes, a hard one to ignore. It's a hard one to ignore, knowing who we know as a man. But um, is it easier if we think of this as before he had a second wife or a third or a thousand wife, right? Um, how many wives he had? Is it easier to think of that way? Ultimately, I don't think it matters. I think what matters is the authorial intent of you know, his textual intention when he's writing it. Now, we can assume that in God's sovereignty that he's not using someone who has no credibility. So probably it had some popularity and lasted as long as it did into the exile um, and collected into the collection of the exile because God used him and his wisdom to write it. So um, that combined with, of course, we believe that the Holy Spirit is actually inspiring him as he's writing it. So um, I think, again, in the way I think of it, textual intention, it's not as important who he is as a man. Mm -hmm. What's important is the words that are being communicated, the, the actual revelation, the special revelation coming from God. Mm -hmm. Yes, God is using this man in his wisdom and the way he thinks and all this stuff, but really the meaning is 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 the locus of it is in the textual intention um, that we're reading on the page so i feel like um, it almost has a gideon like aspect to it in that this what a way to solidify that the message is from god than to show how clearly weak this man was oh. in carrying that through in the same way gideon like had this huge army and god whittled it down until it was so clear that it was god yeah mm -hmm. yeah um and I think, yeah, I think there's some truth there. We probably find that in all kinds of, you know, we know a lot more about a lot of the New Testament authors mm. 
right? Um, yeah. <laughs> we know a lot about Peter. He wrote yeah. books. Uh, he's the source of Mark's books, uh, Mark's uh, gospel. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> we, know, we know a lot about Paul, uh, even after conversion, some mm-hmm. of the struggles he had, but we're still reading this as God's word and textual intention, despite who these men are, mm-hmm. um, despite um, their flaws and their sin. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think if you look up, uh, like, Rehoboam, his son, with the ages and the, and the length that Solomon reigned, it's, it, indi- it seems to indicate that this uh, marriage is before he's even king. Mm-hmm. And he's likely a teenager, and so is she. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in 6-8, it, it talks about harems or something like that. Yeah. And they think that might have been David's, mm-hmm. David's harem, not Solomon's. This right. is, like, really, really early. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, later on, you know, yeah, I think you touched on this a few minutes ago, but it, it, it seems like the picture of the marriage and the relationship Solomon had in, in this book is the example of what marriage and a relationship should be when it's truly from God. Yes. And all of the other... <clears throat> relationships are the example of how things go off the rails when you don't follow the example that God has for us in marriage. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to say it. Yeah. I just kind of tying back, I've read that like a lot of this uh, concubines and stuff is if a family, if a guy works for you, gets killed, it's soldiers and there isn't anybody to pick up that family, yeah. you, you just got them. That yeah. was your job. Right. You know, uh, just sort of like at Ruth, it was sort of right. if there isn't anybody that you were the guy that just took care of them. Right. You were Seems odd that would happen a thousand times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you're fighting a lot, I guess that could happen. So. Yeah, and I, but I, I think that even in the text, again, I, I hesitate to go so far out of you know all this ancient because, again, like we can we can try to understand the ancient Near East culturally. But it's a long time ago, and honestly, you can read a book, and someone's the major authority on it, and they say this about it. Ten years later, somebody's going to come out and say the exact opposite. So um, I think that what's important is to focus on the text, and I think the text itself um, in Kings specifically shows you that Solomon goes off the rails in the narrative. So I think that... um, this is not like we're, uh, you know, we have this beautiful book, we have Proverbs, we have this awesome literature, and we're trying to, completely trying to reconcile with, well, does that mean he, he really was a great man? No, we don't have to reconcile that. The, the text itself already tells us that he goes off the rails, that he, uh, at times, is not walking in the ways that his father walked, so, as the man after God's own heart, so... Um, so let's finish this up, and then we'll open it up um, for, for sharing here. Um, for love is as strong as death, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, shows that divorce is never desired by God, and only, as only death separates many of the marital relationships presented in Scripture. When a man is committed like this, a woman desires to have him at her side. So, uh, again, the point of this... The righteous marriage, Song of Solomon shows God's example of a righteous marriage. The man, man and the woman are devoted and committed to each other. These things show through in the couple's verbal affection and passion. Uh, what is present in the Song of Solomon that your marriage lacks? Passion, verbal praise. Why is it important that we keep this as our marital example and that we guard against the influence of other examples, i.e. Hollywood, modern psychology? Any, any thoughts here? Um, marriage compared to um, the biblical example versus other examples. Any thoughts here? Do you really want people to answer that? Maybe just go with the last <laughs> question. <laughs> it's important not to take each other for granted and to continue to date each other. Like I think that's taking time for each other and being Intentional. Yeah, that's good. That. Yep. 
Yeah, my wife is Beth Pearson and saved. She's <laughs> <laughs> not even in the country. Yeah, I <laughs> and, and I think verbal praise and, and you know, as, as a guy, I somehow you know lack that um, you know expressing my feelings, expressing my thoughts, and, and, and she appreciates that mm -hmm. from from a different mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Contextually. For example, marriages in India, where they are prearranged, where the bride and the groom they only meet on the day of the wedding. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that really breaks my mind is how do they stay in marriage faithfully until death do them part, and and without a god, I mean they have so many million gods, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it just there is something in a commitment. And something in the heart that allows us to honor marriage as God designed it. And I can only hope that by God's grace, we, we live with, with His grace to honor that commitment. Mm -hmm. Because I keep thinking, since when did humanity start having polygamy? Because uh, the Garden of Eden was monogamy. Mm -hmm. And then people seem to think that, oh, we have moved from polygamy to monogamy again. No, we have not moved from that. Right. We have. So it's always the intention. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say this. <laughs> I, I think on on average, men are not as kind of picking up on Sarone are not as communicative yeah. about their affections, about their feelings, and and women are more so and desire that in return. And Solomon here makes it real clear how important that is to express yourself yeah. to your wife. Yeah. So I think that's a, a good reminder for for us in Mary's balls. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, it shows the importance of marrying equally yoked mm. to have that love of Christ because when times get tough in a marriage, you always can come back to the love of Christ yeah. that you share with each other yeah. and stick together. Okay, let's uh, let's finish up with Ecclesiastes. Okay, uh, this is a little bit of a turn in tone uh, as we get into Ecclesiastes here. Again, authorship, uh, Son of David. This is Solomon again. Uh, it was written sometime in the 10th centuries. Again, during his lifetime. Um, the title Ecclesiastes, uh, that actually comes from the Greek word, uh, but uh, it, it, means, it means preacher. Okay, in Hebrew it means preacher. Um, so that's what this is. Ecclesiastes is these are the thoughts of the preacher. Um, and uh, so let's see, uh, starting there in chapter 1, uh, the preacher addresses an assembly saying, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, he's speaking in very extreme terms, right? He's addressing an assembly as a preacher does, using that kind of rhetoric. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, he is bored with human life, concluding that nothing new ever comes out of it. He says that there is nothing new under the sun. It is not only boring, but harsh. Seeking after the wisdom of this world has been a futile endeavor for him. Futile endeavor is the blank there. Futile endeavor for him. Um, again, he's focusing on human wisdom here. Seeking the wisdom of the world has been futile. Uh, according to him, this search results in nothing but more pain. So starting in chapter 2, the preacher examines several things, including laughter and pleasure. He says he spent much of his life working on different endeavors. He says that he concluded that all of this was vanity. Wisdom is futile. Wisdom is the blank there. Wisdom is futile because both the wise and the fool die. So again, he's at this point in the sermon, he's focused more on 
human wisdom, right? So if we all die, then what's the point of wisdom? The wise and the fool both die. And work is futile because it cannot leave one content. Uh, let's see, 226. Um, let me get there. Ecclesiastes 2.26 says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So he's starting to contrast here human wisdom with godly wisdom. Uh, but says that work is cannot leave one content in and of itself. He says that God has appointed a time for everything that happens on earth. Says that God set eternity in their heart. Um, so eternity, as we talked about before, that's not really in the Pentateuch. So we start to see it more and more in the prophets and in the Psalms and in, here in the wisdom books, we're starting to see more this idea of eternal life. It says that God set eternity in their heart. People know it exists, but do not understand it. They should simply rejoice and work hard, thanking God for the rewards. So this is godly wisdom, right? So rhetoric, right, of a preacher, he starts out very extreme, the, the vanity of of humanity the vanity of life the vanity of human wisdom but now he's getting to godly wisdom you should rejoice and work hard and thank god for the rewards whatever they are so that's that's more godly wisdom you're trusting in god the language used alludes to genesis and the purpose of god's creation of man god's works last forever and thus he is to be feared and that's really the main point of all of this wisdom material. The fear of the Lord brings wisdom. Um, we see that especially here in 314. That's where he talks about that. Um, he says that, quote, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. He says that both men and animals die and questions who goes to be with God. He speaks against oppression says that those who have never existed are well off because they have never had to experience oppression. This is in chapter 4 there. Experience oppression. It's the blank. Uh, he speaks about loneliness and how much better it is to be with others. The preacher speaks about the importance of one's attitude towards God. Quote, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. He stresses the importance of keeping vows. And actually, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't even, don't do vows at all anymore, right? Um, just do what you say you're going to do. But here, the similar concept, it's talking about keeping vows here. Fearing God leads to appropriate worship. The love of riches is vanity. As, quote, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He says that it is good to eat and drink and enjoys the fruits of hard labor. On the other hand, some never get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. It would also have been better for these to have never been born. He again reemphasizes the boredom of human life and that there is nothing new under the sun. So again, it's all kind of coming full circle, and he's back to this futility of human life. The, the only reward is doing what God wants you to do. That's, that's, the reward comes from godly wisdom. There's nothing within human wisdom that gives you any reward. That's really the point. So um, significance here, Ecclesiastes reminds us of the futility of human life, by themselves, the endeavors and desires of human life have no value. It is only through the fear of God that human wisdom has any value. Do you ever get too preoccupied by the things of this world? 
how do Solomon's conclusions about their futility, or the general acknowledgement that all in this life will come to an end affect your view of these things? Heavy, heavy stuff here from Solomon. So any, any thoughts here? Futility of human life, godly wisdom. I feel like every time I read Ecclesiastes, I walk away with a YOLO mindset, but not the way the world uses YOLO. I almost, you only live once, in case anyone doesn't know what that is. But um, the world looks at YOLO, you only live once, and says, well, you're only going to live once. Let's just do crazy things and be you know, risk takers yes. and ha like enjoy our pleasures and all of these things. And I feel like when I read Ecclesiastes, I walk away with, you only have one chance to have the privilege of participating in the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. take, take that chance, you know? Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, I love Ecclesiastes. I think it's a really neat book and a book that you can really use to reach out to others yeah. who don't believe. Yeah, and kind of point them to, to, to this. But at my dad's retirement, um, Ecclesiastes 5, verses uh, 18 through 20, talk about, you know, having lived and worked hard and, and all the rest. So to take the uh, pleasure of delight in that and then to conclude with, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart, thinking about somebody that now is past that. I'm there now yeah. since I'm retired, but uh, yeah. it's just uh, it's just an encouraging word I think for somebody that's approaching retirement or yeah. moving into retirement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I think one of my favorite things is essentially, and even looking at you know once again Solomon and his whole life, he's been blessed incredibly by God, and you know this is a text that's to be allegedly like at the end of his life, so he's looking back at his life, seeing all these things, and like Virginia said, with that YOLO mindset of reading this as opposed to the world saying, do whatever you want and ignore the consequences and like belittle those. Like this is saying, understand that we live in a hard world. Like there is hopelessness. So the fact that God gives us this hope is incredible. It is life-giving. It allows us to live this life in a way that glorifies and honors God. But also like God has given us these things within our life to be able to glorify him and enjoy. So enjoy those things, but understand that our eternal hope is secure in God. Yeah. And that is why we're able to not be lost in that hopeless situation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's what you uh, really hit on there is what he's going to go on to next. So let's finish up real quick. Um, Ecclesiastes 7 um, through the end. Uh, the preacher contrasts wisdom and folly with several wisdom expressions like those of Proverbs, wisdom expressions. Uh, he makes a statement about God saying that he is in control of both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity, and that he, not man, will know the future. God knows the future, not you. He makes another statement about God saying that he is the balanced one. Fear of him will allow a person to not get too preoccupied with any one thing, but to ma maintain balance in their life. This is an interesting concept. We really haven't seen much of this in scripture, the idea of maintaining balance in, their in your life. Um, he furthers this by warning people about trusting in the sinfulness of man. He advises the obedience of kings and rulers much of the text here is similar to the wisdom used in Proverbs. Uh, especially here, uh, 8 verses 10 through 12. If you look at that, it, it's basically in light of a sovereign God, wisdom is far greater than any other way of life. That's really the, the point here. He claims that obedience will not always result in blessing because, quote, the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. However, in the long run, quote, it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. This is a major theme of the book of Job. Again, this is, this is consistent with the overall theme of a lot of these books. Fear of the Lord, that's true wisdom. There's often injustice in the earth, so the obedient of God should just enjoy what he, the one who is ultimately just, has given and allowed them to have says that man should be content with his wisdom 
as he will not be able to discover more. The preacher affirms God's sovereignty, but he says that both the righteous and the wicked will one day die. He again encourages the audience to enjoy life and work hard while in life because they will not know when it will end. He wants them to exceed in their work, saying, quote, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He's already discussed the concept of eternity, but here emphasizes the benefit of living now and living wisely. It's really chapter 9 here, verse 7 through 12. We're out of time, but I encourage you to read that on your own. Um, so Ecclesiastes really here is showing us the way to live our human lives. Uh, they are going to come to an end, our human lives, but we should enjoy the lives that God has given us and work hard while we are alive. So you all see, again, the rhetoric of the preacher. He's swung the pendulum, you know, the pendulum from one side, which is there's complete futility in human life. None of this has any point. Again, if you think of this in human wisdom, right? If you're thinking, well, I work hard because I get reward, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, actually, many who work hard, many who do good, have the same consequences that the evil do. So this is futility to think this way. Now he's swung it over here. Godly wisdom, you actually, you work hard, you do good because of what? Because of this is what God is. It's, it, the fear of the Lord is its own reward, and there's an eternal blessing. So um, now he's saying in the midst of that, if you have that attitude, if you have that understanding, then you should enjoy your life, right? There is, there is life to enjoy. Um, okay, so finishing up here, the preacher says uh, he is impressed with wisdom. He thinks it is better than strength. Even with its merits, though, one sinner destroys much good. Unfortunately, the fool is often exalted. He says that work, hard work is important, but to diversify interests. Again, that, this idea of a balance in your life, really, really interesting stuff here. And, quote, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. He says that way, God's ways are mysterious, so a person should continue to work hard at all times. Uh, he encourages young people to enjoy themselves, but know that God will judge wrongdoing. He warns them to remember also your creator, as the spirit will return to God when the body is buried. As Genesis 3 has shown, sin in the world has made God's judgment necessary. And he will have to decide who will return to him and enter a pre-fall state. Uh, the statement about life after death can be added to other statements already pre presented in the canon, including Psalm 49, 72, 73, and Ezekiel 32 and 37. The knowledge that life will end makes Solomon conclude again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Someone asserts that the preacher is one who teaches and writes correctly, but notes that excessive studying is wearying to the body. So maybe this is somebody that, like a student of Solomon who's come after Solomon and just added this at the end. Um, someone asserts that the preacher is, is one who teaches and writes correctly, but notes that excessive study is wearying to the body. Ecclesiastes concludes with the fear of God, to, with fear God and keep his commandments. It's the very end, the last two verses there, serves the overall theme of the book and the rest of these wisdom uh, books. God sees and judges everything, even the hidden. Um, I encourage you to look at this. We'll try to talk about it again next week as we start the new uh, session. But contextuality, which is how you read something in context, right? And the meaning of the Old Testament, you can actually see in the Hebrew Bible a real story that has been... Uh, if you've been with us since last spring, you can see this moving. The story of each of these individual stories placed together moves a larger story together. And we can see here um, that during this kind of poetic interlude, um, again, the, the narrative ended with kings. Uh, the people were 
demolished and taken uh, uh, exiled to Babylon. Well, here in this poetic interlude of all this prophetic material, the Psalms, and now the wisdom books, we can see um, this point. Scripture leads us to righteousness in everyday life. Um, that's really the point of these books, right? Um, Psalms, we, we saw earlier, Scripture leads us to righteousness in the Messiah. You really see that in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. That's the whole point of Psalms. Well, the whole point of these, all these wisdom books is that Scripture leads us to righteousness in everyday life. And it has to do with this kind of poetic interlude, waiting not only for the narrative to pick back up, but waiting for the prophet who is like Moses to come. So we'll talk about this more next week. I encourage you to look at this or take a picture because we're over five minutes. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. See you guys next week.